Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Special welcome to you if this is your first time joining us in any capacity, whether here or online. We're happy to have you here with us. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Resurrection City, and we are continuing on in our sermon series. We're in the third of four sermons here talking about how Christians can faithfully engage with politics as we enter into yet another crazy election season. Um, and we, we just think that this is such an important thing to be talking about, not necessarily telling you who to vote for uh, or which, which party or which candidate is, is the one who is here to save us or something like that, because that's actually, <laughs> we're going to talk today about how that's, that's not the case at all. Um, but, uh, but how we can still faithfully engage in what we think is our calling to love our neighbor well as Christians, and we do that in political ways. So, um, yeah, like we said, we think this is a big issue, and actually we want to continue the conversation uh, beyond just Sunday mornings by uh, having, we were, we've been doing these on Thursdays, uh, question and answer time. You can join us live on Instagram at 4 o'clock on Thursdays, and we'll be posting the videos, uh, the full video up on Instagram and also on YouTube if you want to catch it later on. So if you have a question, we really, really like want to be kind of engaging with where you're specifically at or what you're thinking, and it can be about the sermon today, uh, or it can just be about uh, something to do with politics or uh, the kingdom of God in general. Go ahead and throw those on uh, there for us to see. You can go to our website at rescitychurch.org on the homepage to submit those, or get in touch with me and Julie and just ask the question. But we really do want to be kind of meeting you where you're at on these important topics. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about formation, how we're, we're formed to view uh, ourselves and the world and, and government certain ways by the sort of place that we're in. We called it the kingdom of man. And we, we hear messages, we hear ads, we, we watch TV, whether it's cable news or other networks, uh, through social media, uh, through the campaigns themselves, that are all sort of inundating us with these messages that start to shape how we uh, see what is going on in elections, how we see government themselves, how we see the candidates. And oftentimes, when it comes to the issue of government itself, like what is government here for? What is the purpose of government? We often hear one of two things, and it kind of depends on uh, whether you're hearing it from a liberal messaging or a conservative messaging. So if we hear it from a more liberal side, we're going we're gonna to kind of come up with the view that good government is kind of here to solve all of our problems. Like all these problems in the world can just be solved if we get enough smart people in the room together and they agree on the best topic and we make everybody do it, everything will be fine. We can solve all of our problems. Okay? On the conservative side, the view is often government is bloated, it's often inept, it, it can't get out of its own way, and so the best thing we can do to government is try to pare it down to as small as possible, try to limit its, its ability to mess things up, all right? And so often we end up kind of viewing government one of those two ways. But actually, the Bible has a lot to say about what government is supposed to be as well, and it doesn't really fit into either of those categories, not surprisingly. You'll find elements of kind of both of those, maybe ideas that are expressed in the biblical view. And I thought for us in this sermon series, if we're talking about what it looks like for us as Christians to really engage well politically, we have to have a good understanding of what government is even supposed to be, according to the Bible. That's going to help us uh, live out that vocation. And so today what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about that. 
And, 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 and so here's the, here's the big point today. Before we can engage thoughtfully and really Christianly in, uh, in politics, we have to understand what God's view of government is. And so today what we're going to do is, we're, you guys remember civics class growing up? I, I know in, in almost any room, there's maybe one person who loves civics class and the rest of people hated it and don't remember a thing from it. And then any, you know, they finally maybe learned uh, a little bit more about government, government when they watched The West Wing or something like that, and a much more, much more fun way to learn how the government works. Um, today we're going to do, you can think of it like a little civics class of what government is supposed to be according to the Bible. And we're going to actually start at the very beginning in the book of Genesis and kind of tell the story of how government fits into the story of really the gospel and us as humans all the way to the very end in the book of Revelation. And so uh, you can think of that kind of the stages of this story and so how kind of government, a big picture view of what government is supposed to be from another acronym. I'm, trying, I'm going really acronym heavy in this sermon series for you guys just to help you remember these. And this one we're going to call it NCAA. All right, you can think of it like that, the, uh, the, the collegiate uh, sports institution, NCAA. And, and, and those, four, uh, those four stages are, and we'll, like I said, we'll walk through these and then we'll, we'll have scripture for each of them, is government is necessary to creation, but it's corrupted. It's appropriate to continue despite being corrupted by sin, but it is accountable to the creator as it continues in its role. All right, so, so let me walk through each of these and kind of explain it, and, and we'll, we'll talk about what government is supposed to be, how God views it, and how we can think of it as we decide how to engage with it. So first of all, necessary to creation. Uh, and this comes to us right from the very beginning in the creation story. Genesis 1, verses 27 to 30. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. So, so God creates the earth and everything in it, all of the, the resources, all the animals, all the land within the earth. He creates that. And then he puts these human beings that he creates in his own image on the earth, and he gives them a sort of vocation, a sort of calling for what they're supposed to do with this world that he's put them in. And he, he tells them, uh, you guys are supposed to, to rule over this place. You're supposed to help it be fruitful and to flourish. That's kind of the calling or the vision that he's giving to uh, these people. And, and so when you think about it, the, like any time that you're given kind of a, a goal like that, it's kind of vague, right? Rule over this and, and, and be, make it be fruitful and, and you, should, you should increase in a fruitful way over this earth. Like, if we're going to live that out well, we've got to kind of get together and talk about what would, you know, what would be the best way to do this, right? And as soon as we get people together talking about that, coming up with principles or laws for, for living this out, we really have government. That's, that's exactly what's going on here. There's an expectation, I think, that for us to live out this calling that we have on us as humans, we kind of need government. We need people who are willing to kind of come in and talk about it and set some norms for what actually, what does it mean to be fruitful? What does it mean for us to rule well? How do we 
we, you know, rule well and not bad? Like, those are things that we would get together and talk about, and that really is government. That, that's what government is, it kind of at its most uh, base, uh, base level of what it is, the foundational level of what government is. It's just people getting together and talking about what's best for the society and for the, the land that we're all occupying and the animals within it and the environment and all that stuff. Now, God doesn't just you know, throw them out there, though, and say, you figure it out on your own, though. He actually gives them a sort of, uh, a sort of um, uh, vision for what it's supposed to look like when he tells them, hey, you guys have been made in my image. You, you are supposed to, to mirror me in some way. That's what he's talking about. So when it comes to the, uh, the idea of the image of God and, and, and worshiping God by, by living out that image in us, you can think of it like a mirror. I've heard this described by, by theologians as like an angled mirror. Okay, So a mirror, it's sitting kind of at an angle, and it, it is reflecting what is above it, out horizontally. So if you're standing at, you know, at the horizontal level and you look at this mirror, you can see what's above it. Okay? That's what we're supposed to be as Christians. We're supposed to be reflecting in and of ourselves the image that we've been created in. So when we rule, when we, when we subdue the earth, when we try to be fruitful, we're trying to do it in a way that reflects the image of the one who created us. We're made to be like him, in a sense, and to rule wisely like him. So we're supposed to be asking the question, you know, what, is it, what does it look like for us to, 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 to rule according to the ultimate ruler, the creator of everything? What does it look like for us to be fruitful as we take that vision for what fruitfulness even looks like from the one who has formed us in his image? It's, we're gonna, it's gonna, you know, if we're going to be fruitful, it's going to look a little bit like, and we're going to rule well, it's going to look like what God does, right? Because that's, that's how we've been created. And God's role in this is almost like, you could think of it like gardening with your kids, right? You get your kids out there, you're, you're giving them some tools, and you're like, you know, you're setting them to work, and then they, you know, probably don't grasp it fully, and they're messing up. But, but like, this is your kid. This is uh, something you've formed and you've created. You want to help them to do this as best as possible. So you get in there, you correct them, you, you, you maybe give them uh, some ideas or some pointers, and maybe let them fail every once in a while. Not you know, too greatly, but in ways that they learn and they can grow from that. That's, I think, how God intends uh, for, for human government to look, is gardening with, with my kids, trying to get them to, to understand what it looks like to tend this garden really well. Now, unfortunately, this situation doesn't really last very long. It only lasts a couple of chapters, actually, in the whole Bible, that everything is going according to kind of how God intended it to. Because when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we find that humanity itself gets corrupted by the fall. Sin enters in the world. The, the mirrors get cracked the, the image that we have of God, it gets cracked, and everything else kind of gets cracked as a result, right? Nothing is really functioning exactly as it's supposed to. And Adam and Eve, what they do is they decide that they don't want to mirror God as they tend creation, as, as they decide what fruitfulness looks like, as they rule over the earth. They want to stare at their own reflection and then do their job in their own image, as if they're God themselves. That's actually what the snake comes to them and says, uh, when they say, you know, we've been told that, um, that we're not supposed to, uh, to make these kind of rules on our own. God has given us a vision for what it looks like, and if we eat from this tree, then 
will, will be like God. And the serpent's like, that's a kind of a good idea, don't you guys think? And they're like, actually, yeah, why didn't we think of that on our own? And so everything kind of falls as a result. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we talked about St. Augustine, and he says that really now, as a result of that, you have these two cities that are formed by these two loves, love of God or love of self. And Augustine says, in this moment with Adam and Eve, there, there goes, we go from the one city of God to now the city of man has been created. And it's ruled by humans mirroring their own desires. And so we have kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and senators and mayors and school board members who have kind of been following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve to one degree or another ever since then right? Rejecting, sort of trying to fully image God in everything and trying to figure it on their own, trying to play God in and of themselves. And that's the state that we're in. That, that kind of accounts for why government so often fails. And we can look at government and say, this is not working like it's supposed to. And the, the reason is because humans are the ones leading it, right? We're the ones that, that make up government. We're the ones that mess it up then because we ourselves have been this cracked version of what we were supposed to be. Now, not all is lost, okay? A vestige of this vocation that we have in Genesis remains in government. And in God's grace, things aren't as bad as they could be. God kind of tries to limit them as much as he can. And so the Apostle Paul, he's writing much later in the book of Romans, he actually talks about what Christians' relationship to be should be to government. And I think we learn a little bit about what, how God still views government through what Paul says to them. Uh, because at the time you have some Christians and they're asking the question, well, we have a new king, right? Uh, we have a new king that's been installed for us. Does that mean we're supposed to go and like overthrow the old kings? Like that's, is that, is that what that means? We got some pretty bad kings out there. Maybe we should go depose them and, and we'll get everyone to follow Jesus as king that way. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to work, you guys. Government still has a dignity and a purpose, even if it's fallen, and here's what he says. This is where we get to that appropriate to continue part of the acronym. Romans 13, verses 1 to 3. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that have existed have been established by God. So Paul says the authorities that are in place, they're not there by accident. God is still sovereign, and in his sovereign will, he still established them because he still wants creation ruled wisely. And so just rebelling against government is actually rebelling against God and his authority. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, why does God want government here? What's the purpose of God putting people still in these roles of ruling over us if we know that they're not always going to do this job very well? And Paul continues. He says, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So here, here's what he's saying. The world, as we just have talked about, it's plagued by sin, wickedness, uh, viruses, violence, all sorts of stuff that is a threat to the people within it. And so because of that, it's good to still have this body that is there trying to limit violence and injustice that is uh, through law and policy and sometimes force uh, keeping things limited from getting to the fullest potential of their evil. And for Paul, this is what government 
is, is doing. This is what he means when he talks about the sword that government wields. He's talking about government's power to punish those who come in and really mess things up. Those who have, a, who have violent intent, who, who would come into a society and, and who would try to, try to malign or harm people. It's good for there to be a body that's in place that's sort of keeping that under, under limit. And even, even if that body itself is corrupted, it's still good for a body that is at least trying to do its best as much as it can to sort of limit violence and evil and destruction and wickedness within a society. Think about it like this, all right? Imagine you're driving an old car. It's, it's an old car. It's falling apart. Like the doors are sometimes falling off on you as you drive it. Okay, that's creation now. That's, that's humanity. Uh, it, it, it's, it still skids, it still bumps into things, you know, you're still denting this thing often. But, but there are some brakes on this car that are themselves also not quite working right. But, you know, they still slow you down somewhat. They, they maybe limit the really bad car crashes still, at least most of the time. The horrific car accidents are still being avoided by these brakes that, you know, don't work perfectly and don't come, you know, bring you to a complete stop. You still might bump into things, but you're doing it at a slower speed than you would be if you didn't have any brakes at all. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's good for us to have a government that keeps us from, from, from the car accidents we do get into because our car is falling apart, from at least them being as horrific as they could possibly be, at least, at least most of the time. There are still some times where that happens, but, but at, least, at least most of the time this is being prevented. And so Paul continues on again. This is why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servant, servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. So Paul is saying, give these people a break. Try to respect these people who, who have a noble goal still of giving themselves over to this job and, and are still trying at least to do, at least a lot of them are trying to do it well. They have a good intent with it. Instead of despising them or hating them for how they might mess things up for you in some way or they made a mistake in this area or, you know, some of the, a few of them are really bad people, like try to help them as much as you can, I think is what Paul's saying. Now, maybe you'd say, okay, Joel, I get all this stuff that Paul is saying here, but Paul never, he wasn't, he wasn't under the thumb or maybe under the tweeting thumbs of Donald Trump, or, or he wasn't staring down the barrel of a Joe Biden presidency, right? Like, he, might, he would be saying something different if he lived in America today, right? And I, w- I would actually uh, I, I tell you, I guess you're right. He wasn't living under these people. Let, let me tell you a little bit about the guy he, who was emperor at the time of Paul. Let me introduce you to a guy named Nero. So on top of having a really killer neck beard, apparently, which I just can't get over why anyone would, would want to have that type of beard, um, uh, a little bit more about Nero, okay? So, so Nero's mother, like, and this is a common thing in the Roman Empire, she was like working really hard to make sure her son was going to be next in line and kind of orchestrating things so that he would be uh, emperor when, when he got to be old enough. And at 16 years old, he became, became emperor, and not long after, he had his mother executed. We don't know why he just had his mother executed. I don't I think he just didn't want anyone telling him what to do. And so he figured and the best way to do that was to literally have her killed. Okay, 
That's, that's not off to a great start. Um, uh, and Nero, he did some things that he was trying to be popular with the people. He tried to abolish a bunch of taxes, which didn't go very well. And he ended up being super unpopular in, 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 his, in, his, uh, in, in the city of Rome and in the wider empire. And actually, there was a gigantic fire that happened in the city of Rome under his watch. And three of the 14 districts that make up the city of Rome were completely destroyed. Another seven were were. were, were kind of horribly damaged, and, and a lot of the ancient like historians who are writing about Nero kind of were convinced he's the one who started the fires, all right? There's not consensus on this, but there is, like a, there is a, a theory out there that Nero's the one who actually started these fires in the first place, okay? So not a good recipe to make yourself popular with people that you are in charge of, but since there weren't term limits in ancient Rome, uh, Nero kept on being emperor uh, despite the fact he was super unpopular. And, and he decided maybe one way to make myself popular again is to take these fires that everyone is upset about and blame them on a, a little group of people who uh, everyone kind of views as kind of weird and, and maybe don't really like them because they don't understand them anyway. And so he takes this group of this little group of people called the Christians and he decides to tell everybody in Rome, hey, these people who you already kind of don't like, they're the ones who started the fire. And it started this big persecution and, and Nero would, would actually take Christians stick them on poles, light them on fire, and then use them to light up his nighttime garden parties. Okay? So this is the kind of guy Nero is. This is the kind of person that is running the Roman Empire at the time that Paul is writing Romans 13 and telling us to still try to submit to the authority of those in charge of us, to try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, I don't think even the most partisan thinker out there could think that anyone who's been elected president of the United States or is about to be elected president, perhaps, could be this bad, all right? So, so we have it a lot better than Paul ever did, and he is still telling us to, to give uh, respect to those in power. It's better to have a, a, a government and those kind of in charge, um, even if you get some Nero's in there sometimes, than it is to have nothing. That's what Paul's saying here. And all Christians are kind of called to do what Paul is calling the Roman Christians to do in this letter. Okay, and that's our first point of application here today, is, is we should help government to achieve its God-given dignity still. All right, we, we should treat government with respect. We should try to assume the best in our leaders if possible. We should really help to enforce those bad breaks. Even if we acknowledge they're not always working perfectly, we should try to help re- reinforce them as much as possible to limit the severity of accidents that we're going to be getting in. And we can do this by respecting people in government even if we disagree with them. Did you know that that's possible, you guys? You can respect someone you disagree with? Who, who knew, right? That's very shocking, but maybe some people, uh, you know, you, you never believe that, but it is possible. And I think we as Christians should be at the front lines of doing that, of, of going to people and saying, hey, you know what? We don't agree on everything, but I still respect you. I still want to see you do what you're trying to do in the best way possible. That should be our posture as Christians. We should um, work with them. We should work with those in government whenever possible. We, we should uh, even work for government, perhaps, uh, we should, like, I actually think it's a really good thing for Christians to find roles in government. And we actually have people at Res City who are working in government positions, and I, I think that's really cool. I want to commend you guys for doing, for doing that. I know that sometimes you don't always see the best versions of government in what you're doing, but you are still working hard to try to see, because you know the impact that government has, you want to see government be doing its job wisely. 
For those of us who don't work in government, though, we can help out. We can, you can join commissions. You can get involved in your local government. You can uh, get to know council members or people on your school board. You probably live near some of them. You don't, might not realize it, but like, we have a council member who lives just a few blocks from me and Julian. We've tried to get, get to know him and be, become his friend and, and listen to him, like, just kind of talk about the challenges that he faces. Uh, like, there are things that are going on for those in charge that we don't understand if we're not in that role, and we can kind of talk about them like they're all idiots, and then and we kind of hear what it actually looks like to be in that position. And you're like, oh, now I get it. That, that does sound pretty difficult. So try to get to know people who are in government. Or maybe even consider running for something yourself. That's not a bad thing for Christians to do, okay? As much as we talk about the way that we need to be distinct as Christians, uh, that we need to sort of uh, kind of take the kingdom of God as a, our sort of, uh, dis, you know, our, our impetus for how we decide what it looks like for, for, for people to live best, um, we can still run for government in different positions ourselves. All right, now all that said, let me be clear. Romans 13 is not necessarily Paul saying that God approves of every bad leader out there or every bad thing that those in government do, okay? Because the Bible, like very often, um, t- talks about rulers who are going their own way with harsh language, all right? And what happens a lot of time with government is it doesn't have this view of itself. It has a different view of itself than the one that the Bible is sort of setting out for it. And this gets us to our last part of this NCAA acronym where we're talking about how government is accountable to the king. Now, we're going to go back to John here quickly. Remember, in, in, at the beginning of the sermon series, we spent some time in John 18. Remember, we kind of we held that portion of John out when we were going through it as a church uh, uh, throughout the spring and into the summer and, and in early fall here because I wanted to kind of talk about what Jesus and Pilate's conversation looks like because it helps us to learn something about how Jesus views uh, government. They have this conversation between this governor, Pilate, and Jesus. Okay, And so Pilate says to Jesus, and this is where he's trying to make the decision whether or not to crucify Jesus. And Pilate says to him, hey, don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. See, Pilate sort of falsely assumes that he's not really accountable to anyone. Right? I know this guy Jesus is saying he's, he's from God, he, he, he's, he hasn't denied the claim that he's a king, but he doesn't realize that I'm the one who decides whether you live or die. And, and that's, that's why he bluntly says it to Jesus. And Jesus' response is to try to set him straight. The power you have is only that which has been given to you by the true creator of the world. Maybe you don't realize it, but that doesn't mean it's not true anymore. And I think that this sort of clash or this misunderstanding that can happen sometimes between the state and the true king, Jesus, comes to us in a really, really cool way in a scene from the Lord of the Rings books and movie. I brought up Lord of the Rings uh, a couple weeks ago, and I forgot to mention they're also book series. Again, did you guys know that there are these things called books out there? Not everything is just a movie or a TV show, but uh, the Lord of the Rings books and movies have this really great scene between a character named Denethor and Gandalf. Now, this is from the third book in Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King. Now, Denethor, he is, he is called uh, the steward of Gondor. Now, Gondor is just this, this kingdom within, uh, within Middle-earth, which is where the, the Lord of the Rings books and movies take place. Uh, and it's, it's kind of one of the biggest kingdoms. And, and what happened is, is um, the, the kings of this line had gone missing, 
like several centuries, I think, before the Lord of the Rings books take place. And so because the true line was missing, they set up these people called stewards. They were supposed to be the people who would kind of take care of the kingdom uh, in the place of the true kings for whenever they returned. And you notice in the picture here, you see Denethor, he's the one seated on, seated on that little black throne. You'll notice there's a big white one that's sitting above him, unoccupied, no one's sitting in it. So Denethor, that was supposed to show that the stewards have this sort of subservient role to the kings who are not there at the time. So the stewards are supposed to kind of keep track of the world while the king is not there. And, and, and I think this is how Christians should maybe sort of define the secular area, the era that we live in. It is waiting for the true king to return, kind of living out the way that the king wants us to live, even though we know he's not quite here reigning fully as he will when Jesus returns someday and restores the earth to the, to the vision for what we find in the book of Genesis, where he rules wisely and well, and, and all people recognize him as king. That's what we're waiting for as Christians. But in this in-between period, the government that does sit there is kind of operating in that sort of steward role. But often government or the parties that make them up don't view themselves that way. They view themselves really as having this outsized role, as not just stewards of the earth. And we see this with Denethor. So Gandalf the White, he shows up to Gondor, and he's really kind of operating like a prophet. He's saying, hey, the true king is going to be showing up here soon. Actually, we found uh, someone who's a part of this line. His name is Aragorn. The whole book is called Return of the King, so you get a sense for what the, the, this was what this last book in the Lord of the Rings is about. And, and Denethor is not happy about it. He lashes out at Gandalf, and he's been mourning the loss of his favorite son, Boromir, and he's, he's sad because he thinks, well, my line of, has ended. The, my, my stewardship has no future anymore because my son Boromir is gone. And all he can think about is his stewardship, his role, his greatness, and he's just been sitting there not doing anything while at, this, at the same time the, the armies of Sauron, the bad guys in the book, they're just kind of about to attack Gondor and sweep through the whole nation of Middle-earth, and Denethor is doing nothing about it. And so Gandalf says, Denethor, you are a steward of Gondor. You have the responsibility to protect people from all the evil that's out there. And Denethor responds, I know who rides with Theoden's company, Aragorn, and I tell you, I will not bow to this ranger from the north, last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship. Gandalf responds to him, Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. He makes sure to put that in there to remind Denethor uh, of who he is. And Denethor responds again to Gandalf by yelling at him, The rule of Gondor is mine and it is no other's. So you see that Denethor views, he says, sure, I'm a steward, but he really thinks he's the one who rules everything. And what, what he gets to say is what matters. The, 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 the fact that there's maybe this other king out there that is supposed to be ruling everything, Denethor, he could care less about it. He is the one who he thinks runs uh, Middle Earth. And he re refuses to acknowledge that his stewardship, his rule over the kingdom is temporary and that there is a returning king. And so, here's our second point of application here, is, is we can't give government a status that it doesn't hold, even if it claims it for itself sometimes. So government, like Adam and Eve and like Pilate, a lot of times it wants to rule in its own image. It wants to make itself the all in all, the great I am, the, the one offering us their salvation, their protection, emanating from their powers. If they are the greatest 
people in the world who have come to save us with their great ideas and their great leadership skills or their great philosophies and, 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 and as if their reign is all that there is and everything other than their reign is just darkness. It's not light. But they're bringing this great light to the world through themselves as if they're God themselves. That happens all the time with those in power. Consider, just consider some of the rhetoric that politicians will use to describe their campaigns or the people that they support, right? We, we hear this all the time, right? We can't help but hear them talk about themselves in these incredibly grandiose terms, saying things like, I alone can fix it, right? Telling us that every single election is the new most important election in the history of not just America, but the whole world. Do you, have you noticed that we hear that every election? You know, like how many of the most important elections in the history of the world can there be? Like honestly, right? But every single election seems to be another one of those. Every other candidate other than the one that, that is me is an existential threat to our society. And really the only people, if you think about it, that benefit from talking to us in, in those, those, those descriptors of themselves or their, their candidacy are people who are, are hoping to get elected. So they have to frame everything as if they're the greatest to ever come because then we can't help but vote for them, right? Because things are so bad and the only people who are ever going to fix it are just them. The only way to believe that is if you truly don't think there's another king in the world. If you truly don't think that there is a creator God who is above those who rule us, who, who is the one who has given them that power, who has set them in those places, who is, who is holding them accountable, who, who, is, who, who is making sure that we are cared for uh, beyond whatever our government can do. Now, okay, people are going to do that. Fine. We, we can't avoid that. People have been doing it all the way back to Pilate and beyond, and they continue to do it today. But what we can do is, is even if we can't stop them from saying that, we can choose as Christians whether or not we're going to choose, at least among ourselves, to honor that sort of outsized claim. Remember, we've been t- we talked about formation, the way that Christians can be formed to believe or love certain things based off of just the world that we live in, the messaging we hear. That does something to us, even if we don't realize it. Okay? And so we can begin to think that the only way to accomplish the purposes of the kingdom, maybe, are to just cast a ballot, to put someone in power, and to let them fulfill their grandiose dreams. That's, all, that's what we need to do, because that's all we hear oftentimes, is, is, is that the way to get anything done is to elect me as president or something. Okay? But, but listen, we as Christians, we have to just say no to believing that. Every election cycle, when we hear this come up, we have to say no to believing that. We have to say no to becoming just cronies for Denethor, but instead we should be Gandalf. We, we should be preaching that there is another king out there and that uh, government has a job to do, but we are not giving them this all-in-all status. We need to choose to believe that a much more important election took place 2,000 years ago when God elected Jesus to be our king. And he reigns today and he will return to establish his kingdom fully. Okay, you're asking all, all these, you know, maybe, maybe the, the next question you're, you're asking yourself is, well, what is God doing about like, those who do claim this sort of outsized uh, authority for themselves, almost God-like status for, for what they offer the world and who they are? And what happens when government or politicians or parties start to really get drunk on their own power? And actually, the Bible, I think, talks about this too. And this is our third point of application, is that evil regimes are, are, are not supported by God just in the fact that he has put them there, but they're actually held accountable to him, and they are under the judgment of this true king. Jesus and Paul are both saying that leaders' power is granted, and the one who granted it will hold them accountable. 
If you ask your kid to mow the lawn and they run over your dog instead, I mean, I would think you're going to do something about that, right? The, the, the one who is king over, over all of the earth will hold those in power accountable who, who misuse that power that has been given to them. I think the book of Revelation gives us a picture of this. The book of, the book of Revelation is a confusing one, right? There's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of symbolism in it. It can be kind of hard to understand what is going on in that book sometimes. But when you understand the symbolism and, and what, what, it, what matters, it starts to really unmask things. I think that's kind of how uh, we should view the book of Revelation, is unveiling to us sort of truths about the world through this imagery, through this symbolism. And John, the author of Revelation, he doesn't hold back when he's talking about this government that is drunk on its own view of himself. And so a lot of stuff is going on in the book of Revelation, in this passage that I'm about to read to you, okay? So, so know that, that there, there are more layers to what's going on here. But, but there is at least a picture of government that is sort of drunk on its own power. And, and, and John says this, he sees this vision, Revelation 17, 1 to 2. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, in the ancient world, cities and, and, and nations were kind of personified by these, these great women, oftentimes. So, like Rome, you had the goddess Roma. She kind of represented Rome, and, and she was this kind of splendid figure that everyone kind of venerated and looked up to, and, and kind of, really, she was worshipped. Had, she had this kind of divine status. This is what you did in the ancient world. You would kind of give divine status over to your king or your kingdom, and, and you kind of would do that by having this sort of personified vision of the city in a female. Now, now, John picks that imagery up, but not in a good way. He kind of says, all right, if you want to view yourselves this way, fine. But this is, this is what it, you actually look like. And he gives us this picture. And again, it's, it's intense, all right? It's an intense picture here. But he calls governments like Rome, who think of themselves as divine and are, as being filled with the spirit of Babylon. And that Babylon is the nation that took Israel into exile. And, and it's a spirit that sort of, aggrandizes itself, that is drunk on its own power, and really because it's this, this spirit that is being colluded with, he's talking about, by all the nations, all the kings want some of this power, they, and they, he talks about them committing adultery, and so that's why he uses that, that prostitute image, as if the, the people in power want this power for themselves, and so they commit adultery with this woman Babylon. It's like Adam and Eve kind of to their fullest extreme. And so John portrays her as if she's, she's glorious and all this gold that she's surrounded herself with, she, she's intoxicating. Like, all the governments of the world want to ha have some of her power. They, they want to partake in it. And, and, and that's how John presents this sort of spirit, this desire to have this sort of godlike power for, 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 for themselves. But, but, so here's what he says happens to, to Babylon in, in, in verses 18, uh, 4 to 8. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she is given. Pay back her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart as she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen, I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. 
So God says, I want my people to, to come out of this. I don't want them to be, a, to be partake, partaking in these seductions, in this formation that, that makes you come to view the government as the greatest thing that there is and not viewing a king as over them, right? This is why our sort of distinctiveness as Christians matters. So we, we are distinct in having a different king out there. And this is because she will be overtaken by her plagues, uh, uh, John says, all right? So the things that she does will come, will bounce back on her. That's, that's the judgment that it talks about here. Now, in Return of the King, Aragorn, this true king, he does show up again at the end, but it's after Denethor, is actually, he's actually gone mad and burned himself alive. That's kind of what happens at the end. And so you kind of get this picture of like the madness that overtakes Denethor as he ascribes this role to himself and, uh, and burns himself alive afterwards. And, and, and the, the, the book of Revelation is kind of Coming up with a similar picture here, that when, when those in power sort of get an inflated view of themselves, they often end up overreaching and being consumed by their overreach. And that's God's judgment over them. Now, the whole story of, of the Bible is one of redemption, it's restoration, and it's justice for sin. And I think government fits into that too. We are set right, and we can help government sort of Fill this role when we are willing to engage uh, Christianly in the way that God has called us to from the beginning. Um, as mirrors get remade, as we kind of help the brakes to work in the way that they're supposed to, because we have a better hope, we, we, and we hope that our king brings justice. And, and this is the hope, hopeful thing for us, is we don't have to rely on government, this, this broken, cracked thing of what it was supposed to be. We don't have to rely on that as Christians. We have the hope of being able to rely on our true King Jesus who has, who has come to redeem us and, and to give us a hope that he will give us a new kingdom, a new government someday that is ruled wisely under his power, under his peace, under his love. And we, we wait for that. We, we, we do our best to live it out in the present here, but we have a hope that one day that, that will be the truth for us as Christians as well. So let's, let's be people of hope this election cycle. Let's be people who, who, are, who are animated by this hope and this view of government. Let's not give it too much. Let's give it what, what, what it's deserved and let's help it to live up to that true calling that it has according to the Bible. So here's our reflection question today. Where has my vision for government strayed from the biblical one? Am I, am I taking on a view of government that is coming from somewhere else, a liberal or conservative view of what government's supposed to be? Am I robbing government of maybe this dignity that's been given by God? Uh, or am I granting a claim to government that it is all in all, that, that everything can be solved by electing the right person in our world? Am I in some way not hoping that Jesus will do something about uh, fallen regimes? Do I not have hope that God is going to hold those in power accountable who misuse their power? Or do I need to have hope that that Jesus will return, that this is not all that there is, that there is something much greater that we can hope for as Christians? Think about that as we head into a time of worship. I'm going to pray, um, but then we'll actually be uh, doing communion today. So you should have gotten some communion. Uh, I'll lead us in that here in just a sec, but let me, let me pray first. Jesus, we thank you that you are the king who has come to restore us to our, 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 the image that we were made in, to, to honor and worship God in, in how we, we wisely care for the world. Um, but you also are the one who gives us hope in living in the midst of a broken world where, where government does not live up to what it was supposed to and where often claims to be God itself. Lord, we thank you that you have 
come to set that right and to give us hope, Lord. Help us to be people of hope this election cycle, Lord, whether it's with friends and family, whether it's in how we decide to vote, uh, whether it's in the positions that we hold, Lord, uh, uh, where we work and in our interaction with government, God, whatever that looks like, I pray that you would uh, help us to to embody this vision uh, uh, and to to help call government to what it has been called to be uh, because uh, you have created that way, Lord. We, We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.